I think we just need to keep documenting how all this worked because that's the only thing that's for as a historian, that's that's what I think is important because it's it enables the next step of of holding accountability. You can't think about accountability if you don't understand what happened. And what happened in these more hard-hit communities was so multifaceted that it it really does need to be spelled out. I'm Tonika Lewis-Johnson, and I am a social justice artist, photographer, and the National Public Housing Museum's 2021 Artist is Instigator. And I'm Tiff Beatty, and I am the Program Director of Arts, Culture, and Public Policy at the National Public Housing Museum. And this is Legally Stolen. Well, we are here, episode three, the monumental episode. (laughs) (laughs) This is, yeah, I mean, this is actually, this is the last episode of our three episode series. It's it's just, we're here. We did it. Third episode. (laughs) Yes, we did. High five. Legally Stolen is one component of your multidimensional project, Inequity for Sale, which you're piloting as a part of your residency with the museum. Tell us again, Tanika, what is Inequity for Sale? Inequity for Sale is a virtual and physical exploration of homes that were sold on land sale contracts. It takes us back to the 1950s and 60s and demonstrates how legalized theft in the past directly contributes to present-day inequity in Black communities. Right. You're telling the story of this tragic Chicago history, and you're connecting it to present-day wealth inequality and disinvestment in South and West Side communities. You're memorializing homes sold on discriminatory land sale contracts by placing these five-foot-and-a-half bright yellow landmarkers in front of them. The first two were actually just installed last week. Yes, they are at 6823 South Aberdeen and 7250 South Green in Greater Inglewood. And I am just beyond thrilled to finally have the landmarkers in front of the first two homes. And people have already started to visit the landmarkers and share it on social media. So this is a really important part of the project, getting people excited to learn about this history and to advocate for something to be done. And then also just to popularize this larger issue um, and to know that we have living proof of this period. So I'm really excited. I I cried at the install. So... It's emotional. It really, you know, it's it's a big thing. It's 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 definitely real. Um, and for those people who can't come to Chicago um, or, you know, also want to see uh, how big of an impact this issue has had on on Chicago, a virtual interactive map, which includes land sale contract homes all over the city is available online. Right. Yes, at inequityforsale.com, along with all three episodes of this podcast series. Yep. And if you haven't listened to the first two episodes yet, we recommend you check those out first and then meet us back here when you're done. The first two episodes focus on the history of land sale contracts and the impact of these discriminatory real estate practices on neighborhoods like Greater Inglewood. 
In this episode, we focus on Chicago's fight for fair housing and racial justice, remembering the people and movements that have come before, because I am definitely not the first, won't be the last, just an important part of creating a way for people to really experience how Chicago has tried to confront this systemic issue. So true. We ask what lessons have we learned and not yet learned from history? And we explore potential remedies to repair historical discrimination. We also discuss reparations and redress for legalized theft from Black people and communities who have been impacted by predatory land sale contracts. I'm excited to share what the experts had to say and also hear more about what you think, Tanika. You're an expert in your own right. And as someone who came of age in Inglewood in the 80s and went to Lane Technical High School, a selective enrollment school on the north side of the city, you've been thinking about these issues for a long time. Oh, thank you. And I talked about my epiphany moment in my interview with the museum's oral history corps. It was during that commute that I started to see the difference of how my neighborhood looked compared to the neighborhood that Lane Tech was in. And I, it just, it just made an impression on me because I just knew it wasn't right that my neighborhood didn't look as maintained or invested in as the neighborhood that Lane Tech was in. And the way that my 13, 14 year old brain understood that was, you know, why, why is there so much garbage in my neighborhood versus the neighborhood that Lane Tech is in? Um, like, why don't we have garbage cans on every corner, <laughs> like the neighborhoods on the north side? How come our streets are like so have so many potholes? How come the train stations don't seem to be as cleaned as clean as the ones on the north side? How come my neighborhood has so many like boarded up buildings and vacant lots. How come there isn't a cafe in my neighborhood? And there's like so many in the neighborhood that Lady Tech was in. I was just asking myself all of these questions um, on that commute. And, you know, it took me until my like junior and senior year to realize that, oh, I'm riding through Chicago segregation. It's almost like you got another education on the way to get your education. Yes, I I did. Um, one, I learned how mistreated I felt my community was compared to other neighborhoods. And I really started to understand that race played a huge role in how differently these neighborhoods were being invested in. Right. Historian Dr. Beryl Satter also grew up in Chicago and has studied its history for most of her career. She's part of a large and growing community of scholars and researchers who are trying to understand both the levels of oppression that happened in Chicago and the many forms of resistance that Chicagoans have engaged in for over a century. 
Here's Beryl telling us a little bit about why she focuses on Chicago history. Well, Chicago is, you know, quintessential American city. Um, it was the second city, second largest for, you know, much of the 20th century. Then it became the third largest. And I think it's, again, one of the most, if you want to look at an American city, uh, I don't think New York City or Los Angeles, in terms of just sort of quintessentially with the tensions and stresses that many cities across the country face, I think Chicago is a good place to look. Like me, Burroughs Satter also has personal reasons for wanting to understand Chicago's segregation and predatory real estate practices. Though her interest didn't develop until later in life, right? Right. Her interest in Chicago segregation developed as she was researching and writing her book, Family Properties. In early 2009, Satter published Family Properties, Race, Real Estate, and the Exploitation of Black Urban America. Burroughs' father, Mark J. Satter, was a practicing attorney in Chicago in the 1950s. He fought predatory land sale contracts on behalf of African-American clients. He wrote articles and gave lectures. He did everything he could to sound the alarm about the impact of these kinds of practices. Beryl Satter talked with us about her father's life and work, including how he was impacted by the context of the Great Depression and the anti-communist Red Scare, that accompanied the Cold War, starting in the 1940s and 50s. I think one way to understand his experience, he he was someone who had grown up um, during the Great Depression. He was born in 1916. He came of age during a period of economic collapse. And one thing that that taught him was to consider always, what are the economic forces behind a situation? Where's the money? Who's making it? Where's it going? These are very fundamental questions but they were kind of dampened in the 1950s because of the Red Scare. Any discussion about class was taboo. Any discussion about that a free market system could include systematic economic exploitation was taboo during that period by the time he was you know, a, a practicing attorney in the 50s. He was determined to let people know that that these predatory land contracts were happening and happening on a massive scale. And he warned in 1959, 1960, that if they were not checked, they would lay to waste vast parts of the city of Chicago. And he said, if we don't stop this, these, these unconscionable practices, you know, we will pay as a city by the fruits that it bears, which will be impoverishment and destruction. It was a hard thing for him to do. It was lonely in many ways. It alienated him from his colleagues. You have to have a certain kind of personality to be willing to do that kind of work. And he did it, but he did have a heart ailment and he was under a great deal of stress and he did die at the age of 49. Beryl, the youngest of five, was only six years old. Unfortunately, Mark Satter and the plaintiffs he represented weren't successful or else we wouldn't be doing this podcast. Exactly. And though, as Beryl points out, the fight against predatory land sale contracts did not die with Mr. Satter, she also talks about the Contract Buyers League, which surfaced shortly after. In the 60s, after his death, when the Contract Buyers League emerged to fight these same practices collectively through united action by the people who were most affected, that is the Contract Buyers I think they were in some ways more effective because it was a movement, not an individual. I think being the individual 
trying to sound the alarm. It's 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 one position, but getting people together, communities, affected communities together to collectively fight for their rights is the second and more effective step that needs to happen to remedy practices of this sort. The Contract Buyers League was an organization of home buyers on the west and south sides of Chicago who banded together in 1968 to fight these predatory practices and seek reparations. One of the most well-known founders of the Contract Buyers League was written about by author and journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates. Coates, who gained a wide readership during his time as a national correspondent at The Atlantic, based his groundbreaking 2014 essay, The Case for Reparations, on Beryl Satter's book, Family Properties. A large part of the essay tells the story of Clyde Ross and his family. Coates writes, when Clyde Ross was still a child, Mississippi authorities claimed his father owed $3,000 in back taxes. The elder Ross could not read. He did not have a lawyer. He did not know anyone at the local courthouse. He could not expect the police to be impartial. Effectively, the Ross family had no way to contest the claim and no protection under the law. The entire family was reduced to sharecropping. So fast forward to 1947, Clyde Ross migrates to Chicago from Clarksdale, Mississippi to take a job as a taster at Campbell's Soup. In 1961, he and his wife bought a home on the west side in the North Lawndale community on contract, which Coates calls a predatory agreement that combined all of the responsibilities of home ownership with all of the disadvantages of renting while offering the benefits of neither. In our conversation with lead researcher of the Plunder of Black Wealth in Chicago report, Amber Hindley, she recalls her own encounter with Clyde Ross. I'll always remember. And this is common sense to me, but hearing um, Clyde Ross talk about how much he lost, like in terms of his family time, because he was working so much to afford his contract home, Um, because the homes were overpriced and we weren't making enough anyway. And there's a pride in owning your home. And especially when you've been through what you've been through in the South and you come up here and you probably blame yourself, like I should be able to make it here. Um, This isn't the South, this isn't the same thing. So you work extra hard to keep your home because not everybody lost their home. Some people, and and I I might argue that those who, who kept their home might have a higher cost to pay because what were the what were the losses to make that happen? Quality time with family. He always talks about he doesn't know his children because he was never home. He couldn't be home because he had to work from sun up to sundown to afford his contract home because he wanted to do that for his family. But he doesn't know his kids. And that was a story for a lot of people. What Henley's highlighting is an unquantifiable, intangible loss for Clyde Ross and his family. It can never be repaid. And it affects the Black community as a whole because stereotypes like that of Black men not being around for their families or taking care of their children is rooted in this history. Author of The Color of Law, Richard Rothstein, talks about how important it is to learn and understand this history for exactly this reason. People need to understand and learn the history of how this inequality was created that will um, destroy the stereotypes that they have 
about inequality that somehow makes them think that whites are more deserving of uh, wealth and blacks are less deserving of it. Too many people in this country, and I mean African-Americans as well as whites, think that our inequality is because African-Americans are lazy, uh, they don't want to work, uh, they don't study hard in school. We've got a lot of education to do in this country about this. Most people don't know the history of the land sale contracts in Chicago. Most is an understatement. Almost nobody knows this history. Sometimes it just takes someone to dig a bit deeper, to ask the right questions. Amber Henley credits her mentor and co-lead researcher of the Plunder of Black Wealth in Chicago report, Jack McNamara, for his role as the chief organizer of the Contract Buyers League. Until um, my homie, Jack McNamara, was, um, he was a Jesuit seminarian at the time, was walking around knocking on doors. And I think it was in North Mondale. I'm fairly certain it was North Mondale. And um, he ended up just asking, like, what's, what's, what, what's going on? Like, why are you struggling? What's the problem? And the woman that he was talking to shared that her mortgage payment was crazy. And he was like, okay, well, bring it to me. Let me take a look at it. And when he looked at it, he realized that she was paying way too much. And so at that point, he realized something's not right here. And I'm sure there might've been other people who had noticed, um, who had realized what was going on. But I know Jack uh, made a big deal about this thing. And around that issue is how the contract buyers lead came to be to to kind of band together community members on the West side. Unfortunately, Clyde Ross and the Contract Buyers League lost a jury trial in 1976. And to this day, the damage done to the Ross family and Black communities on Chicago's West and South sides has never been repaired. Perpetrators of these legal crimes have yet to be brought to justice. And here we are decades later, dealing with not only the effects of discriminatory land sale contracts, but so many other similarly complex devices that have been used to steal from Black people and communities. What can be done at this point? For Dr. Burl Satter, documentation is important. It's one of the reasons that this resistance has been able to continue and grow generation after generation in Chicago, and it's the only path to accountability. Chicago has a quite a brutal history of racism, actually. And I'm not sure if it's that different from other cities, unfortunately, but it's well documented. I think we just need to keep documenting how all this worked because that's the only thing that's, for, as a historian, that's, that's what I think is important because it's, it enables the next step of, of holding accountability. You can't think about accountability if you don't understand what happened. And what happened in these more hard-hit communities was so multifaceted that it, it really does need to be spelled out. For Beryl, documentation should lead to recompense. Recompense means to make amends to someone for a loss or harm suffered. I think the work of historians to document practices and then the work of economists to quantify the amount of money taken leaves us no real reason not to 
innovate ways to put money back into these communities and into the pockets of the people who lost money through no fault of their own, through following the practices that every American is told to follow, which is save your money, buy property, strive. Amber Henley is one of those researchers who helped quantify the amount stolen from Black communities through land sale contracts. Hendley actually prefers to go beyond documentation as her favorite kind of research project verges on speculative fiction to imagine what Black communities could have gained if this kind of discrimination never happened. Or a lot, I like to do projections in terms of my research for what, what was what the opportunity is. So I like to think positively about the work that I do because the work that I do is pretty shitty because it's always about what was taken and what was, you know, what was stolen and what was just because people just do really terrible things. But I try to keep my brand of research to be optimistic because again, I operate in how things should be. So like I, so for instance, with the contract stuff that we did, I was only able to do so much because we were doing this at the Fed, but the projections that I wanted to do were based on looking at each year. So I mind it for one thing, it's heavily quantitative, um, but looking at what was taken each year and figuring out um, what opportunity costs, what the opportunity cost was. So was it childcare? Was it private school for kids? Um, was it like um, therapy for yourself? What, what was lost? And over generations, what could that look like had that been given? Like from like, I do a lot of speculative fiction kind of type work to drive investment and getting us to where we were supposed to be. I really like where Amber Henley is going with this. She's asking, what does it look like for Black people to get to where we're supposed to be? What were the opportunity costs and how can the system reflect the needs of the community? I really like these questions. Yes, I, I love it as well. It's like the alternative reality, the, the Wakanda. What, what would the Wakanda of you know, these communities be? But for Athena Williams, a housing activist whose family was directly affected by this history of buying homes on land sale contracts, repair looks like a dramatic change to our tax system. So when I look at the entire um, disconnect of wealth through homeownership for Black people, you know, like I said before, automatically, I feel like any no black homeowner should pay property taxes, period. And again, that takes me into race because this is not even our land. This is the land of of of, of natural born Indians who have been ousted. <laughs> they, they need to really come back and get as much land as we get for that matter. But, you know, I, I know that's another conversation, but black people should not be paying property taxes I love it. I mean, it's it's another conversation. <laughs> well, you know, she's talking about uh, indigenous land rights, but it, it is connected, right? Like, oh, it's it's, it's all connected. Uh, indigenous people and specifically black people through discriminatory housing practices have experienced the same kind of contractual 
racism that has taken property and land away from them. And, you know, I mean, Athena isn't far off. I mean, paying property taxes when you have a history of property being stolen from you or being overcharged for it. I mean, I can see the logic. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Richard Rothstein, on the other hand, believes we're more likely to get support for solutions that address specific violations. I use terms like remedies or recompense because those are tied to specific violations that we can identify. And I think if we explain to the American people the specific violations that we're talking about, we're more likely to get them to support specific remedies for those violations. Specifically, he mentions that banks and real estate agencies are responsible. Those banks owe recompense to those families. Uh, the, the owners may still be alive. If not, their heirs are still around. Uh, those banks that finance this speculation uh, owe recompense to those families. Uh, in some cases, you're able to identify the speculators who are usually associated with real estate agencies who uh, sold these land sale contracts. Uh, those real estate agencies should also be held uh, accountable for the speculation and the exploitation of Black families, and recompense should be demanded from those banks. Amber Hindley has started doing this research and agrees the clearest path is to go after the lenders. The clearest path is to go after the lenders. And if we know, and I started doing some of this research, um, looking at who, who mortgaged these contract sales and when they went away, who acquired them? Um, what institutions now hold that pot? That makes sense, though Beryl Satter complicates this a bit, reminding us that there are many different levels of responsibility and complicity. I mean, I know there's, you know, talk about holding banks responsible, holding universities responsible for practices in their past, but the levels of responsibility go pretty far and pretty deep to police forces that that police differently in different communities and systematically disadvantage majority Black communities. In a way, the whole white society is responsible because there's so many levels of complicity involved. And so that's why it would be appropriate for it to be more socially wider recompense than any single group or individual, it's a big process, you know, defining who, who's responsible and holding them responsible. Often it goes back to federal policies that enabled the plunder to take place in the first place. Richard Rothstein wouldn't disagree that the federal government was a part of the problem and in many ways promoted segregation through policies like redlining, but he also argues that the government is not going to just solve it on their own. This is not a problem because we don't yet have the political support uh, that government can solve. It would be great if government solved it, but government can't solve it. Uh, the only way that this problem can be solved is with a new civil rights movement, like the one that existed in the 1960s, that uh, what John Lewis called made good trouble in order to force the banks the realtors, 
the speculators uh, to uh, make recompense to uh, these families and to their heirs. So my emphasis, Tanika, is um, targeting the specific perpetrators of uh, exploitation of African-Americans in neighborhoods like Englewood and local civil rights activists going after those specific perpetrators to achieve remedies that are going to help to narrow inequality. We're not gonna do it all at once and we're not gonna do it quickly, but unless we begin to organize those local activist groups, we're not going to take the first step. It has to start locally. You get a national movement only when you've had a lot of local activity uh, that builds um, as the support grows. I think uh, people should study the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which always started as a local movement and then grew. When many people think of the civil rights movement, they think about Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, which mandated school desegregation or the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which provided special protections for voters in Southern states with the history of voter intimidation and disenfranchisement. And these are certainly important milestones, but the 20th century Black liberation movement was much more complex than the promise of these national accomplishments, especially in the North. In Chicago and many other Northern cities, the focus was on housing discrimination. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. came to Chicago in late 1965 to fight for housing rights and economic justice for Black Chicagoans. He and local leaders helped build an interracial movement that became a model for other Northern cities and future generations. Soon after King's assassination on April 4th, 1968, civil unrest led to the Fair Housing Act, which was part of the Civil Rights Act of 1968 and banned discrimination in the sale, rental and financing of properties. The Department of Housing and Urban Development, also known as HUD, was created in 1965 and is responsible for national policy and programs that address America's housing needs and enforce fair housing laws. Athena Williams talked to us about her family's experiences with land sale contracts. Athena and her husband bought their West Side home on contract, following in the footsteps of their parents who did the same in the 1950s. Athena ended up losing her properties in 2007 after the death of her husband. Through this experience, she described learning about HUD-sponsored housing counseling agencies, which provide free or low-cost advice for those seeking to buy, rent, avoid foreclosure, and other housing needs. Um, when me and my husband got married, we bought a house. And but then we bought our second property on land contract because I still didn't know that land contract was not something that I had to be leery of until my husband passed away. And then the, the first um, oh, 2007, when everything just collapsed, you know, people started losing jobs. You know, we had started buying properties, lost a couple of properties in foreclosure. And that's when I started. That's when I first learned about a HUD agency which is how I ended up working for a HUD housing agency because I felt like people need to understand the reality behind home ownership, how to do it the correct way, how to do it to make sure that you are building true wealth and not just owning a piece of property. And that's why I work for a HUD agency to this day. 
people need to know about HUD programs and housing counseling agencies. We also need to learn about the history of this inequality. And that's what makes your project and equity for sale so important. It connects history to today. You're an artist and you're connecting with researchers and activists and other artists, as well as philanthropists and all of us. It takes all of us working together across sectors and across racial and community lines. Well, thank you for that. And even beyond all of the intersections between different experts and industries, it also has to become popularized amongst the larger public. Everyday folks need to be aware of this systemic issue so that they can care enough to change it. Mm. So true. And similar to the work that was done around the Contract Buyers League, you're working with people directly in the community. Like this, this artwork isn't, you know, it didn't start downtown, although we are um, talking about, you know, what that means to, to educate folks who don't live in these communities. But, you know, you're from Inglewood and you've been talking to other Inglewood residents. And that's also really powerful. And it's important and it's necessary for folks who are experiencing the effects of these discriminatory practices, as well as the people who are experiencing them today to be in a position to advocate for themselves. So I really love that about your project. And I'm just grateful to be having these conversations with you. Thank you. So let's wrap this up because I'm not the only one that loves this project. Um, Everyone we talked to had really great things to say and so many hopes and wishes and high praise for inequity for sale. Uh, So let's just hear a little bit more uh, just to wrap this episode up. So in Englewood, when we put those kinds of markers in front of homes, it helps to educate people that their impoverishment is not their fault. And they can actually uh, identify the perpetrators of that impoverishment. I hope uh, that uh, your project can go further than simply putting markers in front of the homes in Englewood that were sold on land sale contracts. I hope that you can go to the loop and put markers in front of the banks that speculated to create those land sale contracts. And that would help to educate whites and people who work in downtown about the causes of the inequality in Chicago. And equity for sale will include that research in the last phase of the project. I will be moving forward with creating a small collection of landmarkers that actually call out the perpetrators of these land sale contracts during that period and their existing businesses today. So that is soon to come. And I think what you're doing is very, very important. I wish there were people like you all over the country doing this. I just want people to look at your work and appreciate the art, the artistry that is there, but to really get the message and not just to be moved in this like, wow, this is so powerful. This is so impactful, but move to take action. Um, to look at these homes and say, dang, or this vacant lot and, and understand, connect to that trauma um, and connect to the hope that people still have. Connect to, I, I just wanted to move people to action. I wanted, to, I wanted to, to move people, but I wanted to move them to action. And I think that what you have created 
does that. I just hope people, I want people, I want to, I want them to hold themselves accountable to what they feel when they experience an equity for sale. Any final words, Tanika? Um, oh my gosh, what a journey it has been. And I am just so grateful to have so many brilliant, passionate, caring people support this project and are looking forward to it contributing to the continuation of this struggle, really. And above all else, I'm really happy to be able to help visualize this history in a way that can help people connect with it better. Yes, thank you so much, Tanika. And thanks everyone for listening. We really appreciate your support and stay tuned for many other things that are coming. (laughs) It's just the beginning. Yes, it is. Thank you for listening. Until then, visit us at inequityforsale.com and follow us on Instagram at inequityforsale. Legally Stolen is produced at the National Public Housing Museum and is made possible by generous support from the City of Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Kresge Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, Landau Family Foundation, Illinois Humanities, the MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture at Prince, and the National Endowment for the Arts. This episode was engineered by Seth Engel. Our beats are produced by Rob Smooth. We'd like to give a huge thanks to our guests, Beryl Satter, Richard Rothstein, Amber Henley, and Athena Williams for their contributions to this episode. And finally, special shout out to our Inequity for Sale collaborators, including Paula Aguirre, Janelle Nelson, Andres Lemos-Font, Bruce Orenstein, Lauren Miranda, Olivia Cunningham, and all of the staff at the National Public Housing Museum, as well as interns from Roosevelt University's Policy Research Collaborative.